following sermon, entitled Walk Not as the Gentiles, the 22nd in the series on the book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of July 24th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word tonight to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 in our congregation. We are in the middle of a series making our way section by section through the book. Tonight we will consider Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. We'll begin our scripture reading at verse 17 and end of the read of the chapter. Please pay close attention to the first half as I will not be rereading that. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We end our scripture at that point. Let's at least note verse 17 again as it represents the main point. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. In making us His disciples, Jesus bids us, follow Me. And while there are many things that are included in that injunction, follow Me, one of them, one of the main things, is that as His disciples, as His people, we are to walk in a certain manner. That is, our behavior, our conduct as Christians should be in harmony with the teachings of our Master and being His disciples. 
It's that Christian walk that receives special attention in the second half of the book of Ephesians as the Apostle Paul in chapters 4-6 through applies the truths that he laid in chapters 1-3. through There's an emphasis on our walk. That's true already in chapter 4, verse 1, where we read, where we read that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. The text that we consider tonight says that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ hath loved us. Chapter 5, verse 8, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. One more example. Chapter 5, verse 15. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. As those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, we are to walk, that is, live our lives in a certain manner. Tonight, we focus on that calling as it comes to us in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24, where the calling is walk not as the other Gentiles here. It's put in the negative. The others that we read just now are all positive. Here's how you should walk. This is what your behavior ought to be. Whereas here in Ephesians 4, verses 17 and following, the calling is negative. Do not walk this way. Be sure to avoid this lifestyle. And specifically, it's put this way, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. And in order to understand that language, we need to remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul is writing to a congregation that was comprised almost entirely of Gentiles. Those who grew up Worshipping idols such as Diana, who grew up without giving any thought to Jehovah God, but according to God's decree of election, were brought to faith through the preaching ministry of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. That's the congregation he's writing to. And he says to them, walk not as the other Gentiles. And the idea of other Gentiles is those who have not been converted. Those who have not been gathered into the church. The reference here of other Gentiles is a reference to the wicked world around us. For the saints to whom Paul was writing, he's talking about the unbelieving Ephesians with whom the church would rub shoulders every day. Do not walk like them. That is, he's calling the church to live a radically different and antithetical life in comparison to the world around them. And it's that command that we want to focus on tonight. So the theme for tonight's sermon is walk not as the Gentiles. Walk not as the Gentiles of three points. First, we'll look at the necessary command. Second, at the daily conversion. That is the opposite of walking like them. And then third, the saving power. The Gospel power. The central command of this passage is that we walk not as other Gentiles walk. But if we're going to understand that command, we need to step back and consider for a moment how do 
the other Gentiles walk. And we do that because in the first part of the text that we consider tonight, we have the Spirit's own description of how the other Gentiles walk and why they walk in the way that we, they do. And now rather than going through this line by line by line, I think it's best to start with what we can all see on the surface and then slowly dig deeper and then deeper yet to try to understand why they walk that way. So let's start on the surface. And what we see when we look at the wicked world around us is that they are given over to a life of sin. So what we read, for example, in verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. The other Gentiles are given over unto lasciviousness. And that long word lasciviousness refers to shameless immorality. And what's especially in view are various sexual sins that are so egregious, so heinous that one does dishonor to his own body by committing such acts. The wicked world is given over to lasciviousness. And then it adds that they work all uncleanness. That is, sin is being described here as that which makes you dirty, that which makes you defiled. And the world around us walks in all uncleanness. In every sort of sin they can find, in every sort of defilement they can pursue, they're walking in it. And then the Apostle adds by inspiration, with greediness. With greediness. That is, they can never get enough. One who is greedy is always wanting more and more and more and more. And so it is for these other Gentiles to whom Paul is referring. They always want more sin. So that whatever boundaries might have been in place, they're always pushing the boundary, pushing the envelope, and progressing and developing in sin. Now notice that the Apostle Paul says by inspiration that they have given themselves over to this. Verse 19, who have given themselves over unto lasciviousness. It's indicating that they've done this of their own accord. They walk this way willingly. They've abandoned themselves to such a lifestyle. Which means, when we read, for example, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 24, of God giving them over, when we put the two verses together, here they give themselves over. Romans 1, God gives them over. The way the two harmonize then is that they have given themselves over. And as His judgment upon them, God likewise gives them over. That is, He he removes restraints. He allows them to plunge headlong in the path of sin. A reminder that often God punishes sin with more sin, which is a dreadful judgment. So when the Ephesian Christians looked at the other Gentiles around them, what they could see on the surface is that they had given themselves over to sin. But now in light of the text, we're able to step back, dig a little deeper, and come to understand by the Spirit's guidance why they have given themselves over to sin. And the reason 
is on account of their spiritual blindness. Their spiritual blindness. And we say that in light of the language at the end of verse 17 and running into verse 18. Walk not as other Gentiles walk. Note these three phrases. In the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Start with the middle one. Having the understanding darkened. That is, they've become blind from a spiritual point of view. They have no light. They cannot see. And the part of that is what's said just before that. That they walk in the vanity of their mind. And the idea is this, that they are convinced that happiness, joy, contentment, satisfaction can be found in someone or something other than God. And they vainly pursue joy, happiness, contentment, satisfaction in the things of this life or in the pleasures of sin. Without realizing that they are striving after the wind, they seek those things in riches, in honor, in mirth, even as Solomon of old did, only to conclude it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. Only on account of their blindness, they don't see that it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. That's what it means that they walk in the vanity of their mind. They pursue that which is worthless, that which is empty, that which is entirely vain and purposeless. It's a part of their spiritual blindness. And so to the next phrase in verse 18, having their understanding darkened, then it adds being alienated from the life of God. They're alienated from the life of God. That is, not only are they convinced that joy and happiness can be found in something or someone other than God, they fail to see the corresponding truth that the reality is satisfaction and joy, happiness can only be found in a life with God, being given eternal life from Him and living that life with Him throughout our days. So that what the Apostle Paul is describing here is one who is spiritually blind. And what this teaches us is that a sinful walk is almost always rooted in spiritual blindness. The, the walk is really the expression, the, the manifestation of the spiritual blindness reminding us that the problem is within. The problem has to do with our minds and our hearts when we're walking in the way of sin. And that's especially true for the wicked world around the church. So what can be seen on the surface are other Gentiles given over to sin. If we dig a little deeper, we understand the reason for that is on account of their spiritual blindness. But now we can go one step further back tonight. And we're meant to go one step further back. In light of the specific wording of the beginning of verse 18 in the original language, when it says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, the Apostle Paul puts that by inspiration in such a way as to indicate these things happened in the past in such a way that they still have effects to this day. And that leads us to ask the question, well, what is it that happened in the past that 
still has an effect today. That is, what is it that stands behind their spiritual blindness? Two things. First, the explanation for their spiritual blindness is the fall of Adam into sin. Talked about that this morning. And it is indeed the explanation, on the one hand, of them having their understanding darkened. Because when God created man in His own image, a part of that was that He created him with a right knowledge. As the canons adore put it, His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of His Creator and all spiritual things. But when man fell into sin, the fall into sin changed that so that man lost that knowledge as the canons adore put it. Man forfeited these excellent gifts and on the contrary entailed blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness, perverseness of judgment. Canon the Dort is really explaining Ephesians 4, verse 18. Where does this blindness come from? It comes from the fall of man into sin. And the same thing can be true said about the next statement when it says, being alienated from the life of God. That too is on account of the fall. In that God created man in covenant with him so that God walked and talked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. But again, the fall changed that. Because what do we see after the fall? We see Adam hiding himself. Getting as far away as he can from the presence of his God. What was part of the consequence for Adam's sin? He was banished from the presence of Jehovah God. He's kicked out of the garden. He was alienated from the life of God. These are things that happened in the past. The fall happened in the past and it has effects to this present day. But that's only part of the explanation. We're trying to understand what accounts for this spiritual blindness. A part of it is the fall. But there's more to it. Namely, sinful man actively suppresses the light of nature and whatever knowledge of God he has. He becomes hardened in his unbelief. And we say that in light of the testimony of Scripture. For example, in Romans 1, verse 18, we read of the wicked holding the truth in unrighteousness. And the idea of the word holiness is that they hold it down. They suppress the truth of who God is. They want nothing to do with it. And they do this exactly because though the fall had a profound impact upon man, nevertheless, though man lost the image of God, he retained certain glimmerings of natural light. So that even fallen man knows that there is a God who exists and who is to be worshipped. Fallen man knows the difference between right and wrong. There are these sparks of light still within man, dim though they may be. What does man do with them? He suppresses them. He holds them down. And we say that in light of the language of this passage. Specifically in verses 18 and 19, the additional phrases. Wherefter we read, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, we read this, 
through the ignorance that is in them. There's one phrase. And then, because of the blindness of their heart. And we'll also add the first part of verse 19, who being past feeling. This verse speaks of the ignorance that is in them. And the idea of that word ignorance, or really the phrase, the ignorance that is in them, is that this is a, an ignorance that exists within them. This is an ignorant that, ignorance that is active within them. So the problem is not a lack of education or a lack of opportunity, but man is willingly ignorant. That's the idea of that phrase. And then it adds, because of the blindness of their heart. And the idea is really because of the hardness of their heart. That word blindness comes from the Greek word that refers to becoming callous, to becoming hardened to something. Man becomes hardened against God. And then it adds who being past feeling. And the idea of past feeling is sinful man can no longer feel pain. There's no longer that sting of guilt. And what all these phrases are getting at is that the wicked hold down, they suppress that natural light that's left within them and the knowledge of God that they have. So that though there may be sparks, remnants of light, sinful man attacks them. He seeks to snuff them out. And when his conscience testifies him, you're, what you're doing is wrong, he seeks to silence his conscience so that in time that conscience becomes hardened. It becomes seared like with a hot iron. There's no sensation left. He's past feeling. And the inevitable result is that the doors are opened for a life of sin. The inevitable result is that spiritual blindness ensues for whatever remnants of light, whatever glimmerings may have been there, man has so suppressed them, so held them down that there's no light at all. So now, start at the deepest level and work our, let's work our way forward. The teaching of this passage of Scripture with the rest of Scripture is that sinful man suppresses whatever knowledge he would otherwise have of God. He seeks to snuff out the remnants of natural light. And because of that, spiritual blindness ensues. He cannot see a thing. cannot see the truth concerning God. The truth concerning Himself. And because of that, man is therefore Man therefore gives himself over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That is the walk of the other Gentiles. And the central command of the text is do not walk that way. Back up to the beginning of verse 17. This I say therefore in testifying the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles. He's saying, lay aside your former life. You who were called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. Do not live the way that you used to live. 
And if you have put away that sin, be sure you do not go back to that sinful lifestyle. And what is more, do not be conformed to the world around you. Do not imitate your present environment. Do not behave yourself like the ungodly around you. So that what we have here is a call to antithetical living. We have a call here to live in the world, but not be of the world. We have a call to be spiritually separate, distinct, radically distinct from the world around us. That's the command. And oh, how we need this command. Because the reality is that we are no different than the Israelites of old whom God redeemed from bondage in Egypt, brought them safely through the Red Sea and was leading them to the Promised Land. But yet in spite of seeing all of the miracles, wanted to go back. They forgot the misery, the bitterness of spiritual slavery as it was typified there. And all they could remember was the cucumbers and the leeks and the onions and the fish and those sorts of things. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And that's true of us too. So that for those of us who did not grow up in the church, who were brought to faith later in life, there's a part of us that wishes we could go back to that former lifestyle, that lifestyle of sin. This is true for those of us who perhaps did grow up in the church, but perhaps in our teenage years or as a young adult, we're not so faithful in living the Christian life. We perhaps sowed our wild oats for a time as the expression goes, and there's still a part of us that views those days as the the good old days, the glory days when we were having fun and all this pleasure. But even if neither of those scenarios are true, there's application for every one of us because we all live in the midst of a wicked world. And the temptation is to think that the world around us are the ones who have joy, happiness, contentment, and satisfaction. To think that all of that comes from money and vacations. From sexual pleasure from drinking and partying, from entertainment and sports, or whatever it may be. They have it made out there. So that within each one of us, there's this this tug, this pull to join the other Gentiles in giving themselves over to sin. And the reason for that is because every one of us still has an old man of sin. That too is a part of the instruction of this passage when we continue reading and get down to verse 22 that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. In the second point of the sermon, we'll talk about putting off the old man, but for now we note the presence of the old man. And the old man here is our sinful nature, that fallen nature that we've inherited from Adam. 
It's that part of us that's bent, inclined to sin that hates God and hates the neighbor and is only concerned about self. Every one of us still has that old man. Even though we've been quickened, made alive together in Christ, we still have that corrupt, depraved nature within. And that depraved nature is ever tugging, pulling, trying to get us to walk as the other Gentiles walk. And it tugs and pulls at us through deceitful lusts. That's the language in verse 22. Put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Deceitful lusts. That is, the old man, that sinful nature we have, works tirelessly to deceive us into thinking that joy and happiness, contentment and satisfaction come from giving in to the desires, the sinful desires, the lusts in us. It's the old man that wants us to believe that happiness is found in possessions. It's the old man that wants us to believe that satisfaction comes through sexual pleasure. It's the old man that wants us to believe that contentment comes from great wealth and joy comes from the praise of men. And because we each have that old man of sin within us, the necessary calling of the text is do not walk as the other Gentiles. Do not go back to that lifestyle. Do not start that lifestyle. But why not? Sure feels good when I give in. Why should I lead an antithetical life that's so distinct, so different from the world around me? Because you have not so learned Christ. That's the reason for heeding this Word that comes out in this passage. Verses 20 and 21. Walk not as the other Gentiles. Why not Paul? Verse 20, but ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul begins with the words, but ye. That little word ye is emphasized. He's calling attention to the distinction between these other Gentiles he's been describing and the Gentiles to whom he's writing. He's saying, you are different not because of any difference in you, but because you've been made God's people. You've been saved in Jesus Christ. Your identity is no longer Gentile. Yes, that's still true of you from a racial point of view, but your identity is that you are in Jesus Christ. And he continues to emphasize that point in the rest of the language, when he says, but ye have not so learned Christ, the idea is not just you've learned about Christ, you've learned all these facts concerning Him, but you've learned Him. You've come to know Him. You've come to believe in Him. And he's confident of that. 
The confidence is expressed in verse 21 when he says, if so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. And now when he says, if so be, in the original language, you can tell that the Apostle Paul views this as true. He's confident of this so that the idea is since ye have heard Christ, since you've been taught by Him, I know it's true about you. You've been brought to faith. You are in Christ, united to Him. And for that reason, do not walk as the other Gentiles. Because walking as the other Gentiles and being in Christ, having learned Christ, are diametrically opposed to each other. Because learning Christ, being in Christ, means according to chapter 1 that we've been adopted in Christ. From all eternity to be the sons and daughters of the Most High. And shall we, His sons and daughters, walk with the children of disobedience, the children of wrath, To be in Christ is to be redeemed with the precious blood of our Savior. And shall we who have been redeemed go back to our former slavery and bondage and make ourselves willing servants of Satan himself to have learned Christ, to be in Christ means to be made alive again by the Spirit of Christ come to dwell in our hearts. And shall we who've been made alive walk as though we're still dead in trespasses and sins? To learn Christ. To be in Christ. Is to be made members of His body. To be made members of His bride. And shall we who are His body and bride join ourselves to a harlot To be in Christ, to learn Christ, is to be spiritually enlightened, be, to be given the eyes of faith. And shall we walk about as though we are still blind? What the Apostle Paul is saying when he joins verses 20 and 21 to the previous context is to say, You have learned Christ, you are in Christ, that's your identity. Therefore, do not walk as the other Gentiles walk. Because following the other Gentiles is to go in the exact opposite direction of following your Savior who bids you, follow Me. To walk as the other Gentiles after all that Christ has done for you is the height of ingratitude for His saving work at the cross of Calvary. And to walk as the other Gentiles is to show that we've believed the lie. We've come to believe that happiness, contentment, joy, satisfaction is found in the things of this earth and in the pleasures of sin when the truth is it's found only in Christ. Our hearts are restless until they rest in 
him. So do not walk as the other Gentiles. And if we're ever going to do that, it means living a life of daily conversion. Because we do still have that tug, that pull, trying to draw us in the wrong direction. And we have to address that. And that is addressed through a life of daily conversion. And we use that language of conversion in light of the language that's used in verses 22 and 24. Verse 22, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man. Verse 24, that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man is a description of the theological concept that is a life of conversion. Not just an initial conversion, but daily conversion. Something that happens all throughout our lives. Very clearly, there are two aspects to it. First, we are to put off the old man. Verse 22, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man. Notice what we're putting off. does not say put off the former conversation. That is, do not put off the walk of life, but put off the old man. That depraved nature that is you have to get at the root. If you are ever going to address sin, it will do no good to try to simply put away the external actions. You have to get down to the level of your heart. Put off the old man. What does that mean? To put off the old man. Well, the figure here, the illustration the Apostle Paul is using is that of putting off a garment, a piece of clothing. Only it's not like when we take off our clothes and that we take them off, hang them up, and put them in the closet with every intention of putting it back on. That's not the idea. But to put off the old man is to get rid of the old man. It's to renounce the old man. To rid ourselves of him. Put him off because you never want to wear him again. Concretely, that means suppressing and holding down those sinful inclinations that arise from within us. And now I'm very deliberately grabbing from the language that we used earlier. We said about the, the wicked, the ungodly, that they suppress, they, they hold down the knowledge of God. They want nothing to do with it. It's the wicked who attack any sparks of natural light that are left within them. Well, now we can give some substance to putting off the old man by taking that language and now applying it in a good sense in that the child of God is to hold down and to suppress those sinful desires that arise within us. So that when the old man comes seeking to deceive us, saying, happiness will be found in this, you know. We say, no. We attack that. We seek to snuff out that lie, that desire within us. 
And I trust you understand and recognize this is something that has to happen daily. All the time. Because the old man is ever present with us. For though we're called to put him off, the reality is we'll never be fully rid of the old man until we die and we're brought to glory. And that means every day, really every hour, if not moment by moment, we have to put off the old man and put him off again and then do it again. To illustrate this, and I hope this illustration helps more than distracts, you can consider this as a spiritual version of the old game whack-a-mole. For any who do not know what that is, it's an old arcade game in which you are given a mallet, a hammer, and in front of you are all these holes and a mole pops up here and you have to take your mallet and smack it back down. And then a mole pops up here and you have to take your mallet and smack it back down. It's really what we have to do with the old man. Because he will keep rearing his ugly head. And first he pops up over here and we have to put off the old man. Hold him down. Suppress him. Say no. And then he pops up again over here and hold him down. Put him off. That's this negative aspect of a life of daily conversion. And yes, it is exhausting from a spiritual point of view. But it's crucial if we are ever going to avoid walking as the other Gentiles walk. But there's more to a life of daily conversion. It's not just the negative, putting off the old man, suppressing, holding down those sinful desires. It's also putting on the new man. And that's the language of verses 23 and 24. Here's the positive. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Here we have to begin with the new man because we have yet to explain the new man. The new man is that new life that new principle of life that's given to us from Christ by His Spirit when we are regenerated. So that we are now new creatures. We have this new life from Christ within us. A life that rather than being bent on sin, hating God and hating the neighbor, this is a life that loves God and loves the neighbor. That delights in the law of our God. And to be given this new man is to have the image of God restored to us. We say that in light of the language found in verse 24, and that ye put on the new man. Which new man? The one that, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. God created man in His own image. That is, there's a, a certain creaturely reflection of some of the attributes of God that are found in man as He was created. Specifically, as mentioned here, that includes righteousness and true holiness. And the idea is really that these apply to the different faculties of man. A part of how God made us is that He gave us a mind, a will, certain affections. And in creating man in righteousness and holiness, that means 
Man's mind was holy in the beginning. Man's will was holy. His affections were holy. But the fall changed that. That's what we saw this morning when we looked at Lord's Day 3. Adam fell. He lost the image of God. And that means he not only lost the holiness, the righteousness, and the knowledge, but those things were replaced with the exact opposite. So that man's mind, rather than being holy, is now unholy. Man's will is unholy. His affections are unholy. That's what's true of fallen man. But those who are in Christ, those who are quickened, made alive again in Christ according to the language of Ephesians 2, have that image restored. We've been recreated in the image of God so that we're given that righteousness and that holiness back. That's what it is to have the new man. And now the calling of the text is be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. This is the positive aspect of a life of daily conversion. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, he says. The word spirit is rightly not capitalized because though conversion is ultimately the work of the spirit within us, the spirit of the mind has to do with that which governs the way that we think at the most fundamental level. It's calling for a radical change in the way that we think. So that instead of believing the lie that happiness, contentment, joy, satisfaction are found in the pleasures of the sin or the things of this life, we are renewed in the spirit of our mind so that we recognize it's just the opposite. That leads to misery. That leads to ruin. That leads to bondage. Joy and happiness is found only in life with God. That's to be our thinking. And in that connection, the Apostle Paul adds, and put on the new man. That is, be clothed with the new man. Be clothed with righteousness and holiness. So that whereas the other Gentiles have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness, we are to give ourselves over unto holiness and to work all righteousness. We're to be devoted to such a life, which is to say, to be devoted to our God. Put on the new man. We have to do both at the same time. Negatively, put off the old man. Positively, put on the new man. Because you cannot do one without the other. It will do you no good to try to put off the old man without also putting on the new man. That's like going out to some plot of land and removing whatever vegetation is there, but then just letting it sit without planting anything new in its place. Some crop or some beautiful vegetation. What's going to happen is in no time at all, that plot of land is going to be full of weeds. Well, So it is for us from a spiritual point of view. If we only ever try to put off the old man, say no to sin, without putting on the new man living in holiness and righteousness, 
Well, sin is very quickly going to come back and fill that void that is left in our hearts and lives. So it does no good to put off without putting on, but it also does no good to try to put on the new man without first putting off the old man because then really what we're trying to do is to put the new man on over the old man. And to do that is to live, to try to live the Christian life from merely an outward, external point of view. Without any change in the heart. We must both put off the old man and put on the new. That's the life of daily conversion that keeps us from walking as the other Gentiles. So the main point of the sermon is do not walk as the other Gentiles like the wicked world around you. And to that end, live a life of daily conversion, putting off the old man, putting on the new. How are we doing in this? If we are honest with ourselves, every one of us must say, I have failed. Because the reality is that rather than putting off the old man, I've allowed him to grow, to flourish, to blossom into all manner of sin. Rather than putting on the new man and giving myself over to righteousness and holiness to work that. Still walking in sin. Rather than being different from the world around me, I'm very much, there are certain aspects of my life that are still conformed to the wicked world around me. That's what this passage leads us to conclude about ourselves. But though that is true of every one of us, there is still good news. And that good news is the saving power of the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that saving power includes, first of all, the power to forgive our sins. We need that forgiveness. Exactly because of what we've just seen. That when it comes to putting off the old man and putting on the new living a life that's distinct from the world around us, we have failed. We have not heeded this Word. We are sinners. But the good news of the Gospel is that there is redemption and forgiveness. That's chapter 1, verse 7. Remember, all of this is built on the first three chapters. Chapter 1, verse 7. In whom, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And we have that because Christ took upon Himself our sins. And now put that in the language of the text. He took upon Himself our vanity. He took upon Himself our darkened understanding. Our ignorance. Our blindness that is 
hardness. He took upon Himself our lasciviousness, our uncleanness, and our greediness. He was made sin for us. And He took all that sin and carried it to the cross where He then was alienated from the life of God, estranged to the life from God. He said so Himself when He cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? For three hours, He did not know God's pleasure and happiness in Him. All He knew was God's wrath and displeasure in Him. He redeemed us. And it's on the basis of that atoning work that we now have forgiveness. There's pardon for all of that sin that we've lived in. And it's knowing that that becomes the the motivation, the, the driving force for a life of thankful living. It's knowing that by nature I am no different than those other Gentiles. It's knowing that perhaps I was one of those Gentiles in a former life before I was made a Christian. But yet God, according to the riches of His grace, plucked me out of that. He worked faith into my heart so that I might learn Christ, hear Him, and know Him. And because He has done that for me, I now want to follow Him. To not walk that way like the other Gentiles anymore, but to follow the footsteps of my Savior, living a way that's living a life that's pleasing unto Him. So that it's the gospel that drives this antithetical life, this life of daily conversion. Now there's still more good news. Because the saving power is more than that. There's the forgiveness of sins. The saving power includes the fact that we are now strengthened by the Spirit of Christ to make a small beginning in such a life. That's true on the one hand because of the work that's already been done in us. That work according to chapter 2 of taking us who were dead and making us alive again. Remember, the exhortations are built on the Gospel truth that has come before. It's with that in mind that we have to move forward as we progress in the book. He's made us alive. He's already given us new life. So that when this calling comes to us, the idea is really, be who you are in Christ. Live according to that new life. The old man has been put off in principle in that the power of sin has been broken in your heart and life. The new man has been put on in principle in that you've been given this new life and that new life is now your identity. It's who you are in Christ. And now live like it. Live according to this. Praise be to God, He gives us the strength to do so. Because it's not just that 
He worked in us at the beginning, giving us new life at regeneration, but He continues to strengthen us. He continues to empower us by the work of His Spirit. And we need that. Because even as those who are regenerated, if we were left to ourselves at that point, if it was up to our own strength to now live this life of daily conversion, we would just continue failing. But the good news of the Gospel is that God is our strength. And do not forget the exceeding greatness of that strength as it was described for us back in chapter 2. It was in His strength, really chapter 1, in His strength that God raised up His Son from the dead and made Him to sit in heavenly places. It was in His strength that God took dead sinners and made them alive again. It was in His strength that God took Jews and Gentiles, those who were at odds with each other for generations and made them one in Jesus Christ so that they have peace with each other in the church. It's that same strength whereby He empowers us. Our God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that means He's able to strengthen us, to empower us, to say no to that other life, that walk of the other Gentiles, and to live a life of daily conversion. So go to Him. Look to Christ for your strength and pray on bended knee. God, work in my heart. Keep me from walking as the other Gentiles and strengthen me to put off the old man each day and to put on the new. Amen. Father, we praise Thee for Thy sovereign grace and the work of grace which Thou hast performed in our own hearts and lives. And we pray that Thou wilt so strengthen us and lead us by Thy Spirit that we now heed this Word and walk accordingly, accordingly, following not the other Gentiles, the wicked world around us, but following instead our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear this prayer for His sake. Amen.